Well, if you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. Tonight we will we will cover the last six verses of this wonderful letter. A study that we began uh, the first part of January, back January 5th. A lot has happened since then, has it not? <laughs> While visiting Trinity Church in Seattle with Caleb and Audrey last fall, uh, I read a paragraph in their bulletin that I stole, basically, and uh, brought it back and modified it and put it in our bulletin. It's the first paragraph of the first page that you um, have seen periodically, but pretty steadily for the most part over the last few months or at least since that, that uh, October of last year. But it says this, it says, what we are about to do may seem a little strange because we do more than just sing, which is usually what people associate with the word worship. The form and the content of our worship communicates a narrative that is told each Sunday and each piece is either commanded or exemplified in Scripture. God has determined the way in which we should approach Him. And as a church, we try to be faithful to what God has revealed and to how the church has interpreted that revelation throughout history. And one of those pieces or elements that may seem the most unique to not only us, but those within the church, is the benediction. And it's... Its uniqueness is due to a couple of things. One is its misunderstood purpose, as well as its absence from most worship services. It's usually not included. And, and quite honestly, we have to admit, I think, that um, the language of lift up your eyes and prepare to receive, as well as, as many in the room will, will in, in posture, right? Arms wide, hands open and turned up. And, and that changes things a little bit from just being simply unique to oddly peculiar. And yet, the benediction is just as important as the, invo- is the call to worship and the invocation and the singing uh, and uh, the confession of sin and assurance of pardon, um, of our reading uh, the Scripture and the preaching of Scripture as our common confession of faith, as the Lord's Supper, as our giving, um, as the doxology. And I say that because the benediction isn't simply a closing statement. It's really not a concluding statement at all. It's really a transition statement. It's a transition statement. And what I mean by that is, you know, having gathered, we've gathered this evening out of the world, apart from the world. And we've gathered to worship, to, to be ministered to by God and to edify one another through our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We've, we've gathered, but having gathered, we are going to leave... And we're going to scatter and we're going to go back out into the community and we're going to go back out to live and to work and to play and to love and to serve. And we cannot do that. We cannot. Well, we must not because we cannot do that in our own power. 
We don't have the ability to do that by ourselves. If we're going to do that in a manner worthy of our calling, we can't rely upon ourselves to do that. We, we must rely upon that which God gives, only that which God gives us and what he gives us in the midst of our worship service through the simple means of grace is Jesus. He gives us Christ. And what the benediction does, it's a scriptural pronouncement that assures us that the grace that we've been offered, it assures us that it's been offered and it assures us That we've received it. It's ours. And and we have what we need. We've been enabled by that grace. By Christ. To go back out into the world. Just as boldly and confidently. As we entered. To approach the throne of grace. And you may not have realized it until a few minutes ago, but you've heard this portion of Scripture, the first two verses of this portion of Scripture, 32 times since January 5th, because it's been our benediction every Sunday since we began. On purpose. And tonight we're going to look at it more closely. What has that blessing been that you have received week after week after week over the last Eight months. But before we jump in, let's pray. Father, would you now, uh, as we come to proclaim your word that's eternal, infallible, and inerrant, would, would you grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and that is profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that we may be complete That we may be equipped for every good work. Would you by it and and by your word, by your spirit and your word, uh, challenge us, strengthen us and encourage us in these moments. Would you use me as you see fit for the sake of Jesus and his church, I pray. Amen. And amen. All right. So we've got to do this. In the first 12 chapters, in our study, what we covered for the majority of this year to this point, we saw the writer move back and forth between warm gentleness and strong encouragement, as well as stern warning. And he moved back and forth in an effort to encourage his Hebrew Christian readers in that small church. He's encouraging them to stay the course. He's encouraging them to not forsake Christ, to to revert back and to forsake their faith or to renounce their faith and forsake Christ. He's urged them all along, stay on the course, run the race of faith, finish well, don't give up. And to do so by keeping their eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus, who he has lovingly and painstakingly presented as better than angels and Moses and Aaron. He said that Jesus was uh, the better priest of a better priesthood and the better mediator of a better covenant because he was a because he himself was a better sacrifice and his blood was better than any bull or goat. And he wants them to rely upon him and him alone. 
Well, in these first 19 verses that we covered last week, we saw him make a transition and he moved from declaration to instruction. And we said he was like that parent of a, of a first grader or a 16-year-old or a college student, right, who, who's rattling off those last-minute do's and don'ts because he, there's so much love within him and care and concern for his church that he, he's just, these things keep coming to his mind, and so he wants to make sure they get them all. And he doesn't leave anything out. And in these last six verses... He does conclude the letter, but he does so in a way that's really very comforting, uh, provides confidence, it provides assurance, and it even provides the ability to do what he is calling his readers to do. He's expressed over this time, as we've read through the letter, he has expressed his confidence in the readers. We've heard that on several occasions. He's encouraged them. Again, he's believed that they are going to stay on course, that they're not going to apostatize. They are going to keep their eyes on Jesus. They are going to run the race. They are going to finish. They are going to endure. And they are going to finish well and enter into his rest, into the rest of the Lord. And we know that from verses like these. Chapter 3, verse 1, he calls... He called them holy brothers, right? And he said, you are holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. In chapter 6, verse 9, he said, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He said in chapter 9, verse 24, that Christ has entered heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He said in chapter 10, verse 39, that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. He said in chapter 12 that they and we had come to Zion. We had received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It was a present spiritual reality. But through this prayer, as we read this benediction we see that he communicates very clearly that his hope is actually not in them. His hope is not in us. His hope is in the Lord. His hope is not in the people to to persevere, though they will. His hope is that they will be preserved. Notice he says, now may God... He's obviously been making an appeal to the people over and over and over again. We've seen that. We've recognized that. We've spoken about that. And he's making an appeal to them because they are, in fact, responsible. We are responsible to obey. We're responsible to run. We're responsible to endure. We have wills. We make decisions. We do act. But here he makes his ultimate appeal to the Lord. The ultimate appeal is to God because... While they and while we have the responsibility to stay on course, run the race, and endure to the end, we, they, we are dependent upon God to bring about what He desires and requires because they could not do it on their own and neither can we. And the pronouncement that's included in this appeal is meant to communicate Clearly that his hope 
is sure because his hope is in God. A God who redeems, a God who consecrates, a God who equips, a God who assures, and a God who unites. That's our outline. And that's what we want to look at. So let's jump in first at verse 20. A God who redeems. He says this in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is where it all begins. Because apart from our redemption, there is no hope. We have no hope apart from what Christ has done. God is a God of peace. He has reconciled us to Himself. And He did so, in Paul's words, in the midst of our weakness. While we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were still enemies of His, He secured our dwelling with the Lord. We were released from our sin. While we were sinners and enemies, He saved us. We didn't have to clean ourselves up. We didn't have to act. We didn't have to get our acts together in order to be redeemed. We experience both the peace with God and the peace of God because of the God of peace Himself. Initiating that reconciliation. He sought peace and reconciliation with us in the midst of of our mess. He took it upon himself to bridge the chasm between him who is holy and us who are unholy due to our sin and rebellion. And there was no negotiation on our part. We didn't sit down across from the table and work out our demands. It was something that was done for us and that we received by faith. And of course, that was all accomplished by the Lord Jesus. He was the one who died on the cross on behalf of sinners in our place as our substitute, paying the debt that we owed for our sin. He shed his blood of the eternal covenant in order for us to experience forgiveness and that peace and that freedom from our sin. And that substitutionary atoning work was deemed not only appropriate, but acceptable through the resurrection, which was the Father's stamp of approval on Christ's work. On the cross, Christ said, it is finished. And through the resurrection, we can hear the Father replying, it was enough. So, as we read in the Gospel of John, Jesus, as the great risen shepherd, who laid down his life for his sheep, who were given to him prior to the foundation of the world, takes divine initiative by the Spirit to call his sheep by name, they hear him and follow him because he knows them and they know him. And brothers and sisters, having heard his voice and having followed, he has led us out 
of our sin and misery into green pastures and quiet waters. He has called us out and by grace He's restored our souls. He has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies and He's secured our dwelling in His house with Him forever. Because that eternal covenant that we've been speaking about, that we spoke about in Leviticus as it pointed to the new covenant and and the eternal covenant that we've been speaking about is eternal in the sense of it's eternal from the past forward to the present and into the future. It's, It's not just eternal in terms of the past and prior to the foundation of the world, but it's eternal into the future, into the new heavens and the new earth. In Paul's words to the Ephesians, he says the same thing. He says we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work within the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. In the benediction, Hear that God is a God who redeems. But He's not only a God who redeems, He's also a God who consecrates. You will probably remember these words that I shared from R.C. Sproul during our study of Leviticus. He once said, what makes something sacred, what makes something holy is the touch of God upon it. When the one who is himself other and different touches that which is ordinary, it becomes extraordinary. And that's what he's done to his people in and through Jesus and his atoning work. He's touched us. And he's declared that we as his people are holy. He has set us apart as different and unique from the world around us. And and again, we are his sheep. And not because of Anything in and of ourselves, but because of Christ. Christ has taken on our sin. His righteousness has been imputed to us. He was our full and final payment for our sin. He atoned for our sin. He purified us from our sin. He is our peace. We are now in fellowship with Him. We've been declared righteous. We are saints. We've been declared holy and set apart for divine service, for His good, uh, good pleasure and purpose. In Peter's words, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once we were not a people, now we are God's people. 
And that leads to our third point. Look at verse 21. He says, May the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will. We are actively involved in the call to be holy. That's why the writer has been appealing, right? Appealing to his readers and to us over and over and over again to stay the course, run the race, endure to the end, finish well. Holiness is something we are to pursue. Actively pursue as members of the covenant community. And having been declared and set apart as holy, we are also to continue to strive to become that which we've been declared and set apart to be. We're to demonstrate, having been called to holiness, we're to demonstrate holiness in the day-to-day. And, but due to our flesh and due to the residue of sin that remains, right, it's going to remain until Christ returns, we're unable to do completely and perfectly what we've been called to do. We In Jesus' words, apart from me, you can do nothing. But fortunately, God is a God who equips. Our sin had, as I was telling the children, our, our sin had marred us beyond usefulness. But God in Christ repairs us that we might be useful again. He mends us. He perfects us. He He progressively sanctifies us. And if you remember back in our study in Galatians, He mends us like a broken bone. He sets us and puts us back into place. And again, as I mentioned the children, He takes that knot out of us. He repairs us. Whatever it is He calls us to do, He enables us to do. Whatever whatever He puts before us, To endure and to handle. He gives us what we need to endure and to handle. Whatever whatever we lack, He provides. There was a time for all of us when we were unwilling and unable to do His will, but He's even, even, even given us the willingness and the ability to now do it. In and through Christ, anything and everything we need is at our disposal. In Paul's words, Ephesians chapter 1, he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's why David in Psalm 34 says that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And how does he do that? He does that by His Spirit and through His Word. As I prayed earlier from 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In this benediction, hear that God is... Not only a God who redeems, but He's a God who consecrates and equips. And then in verse 21, He also said He is a God who assures. He says, working in us 
that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We can be assured, brothers and sisters, we can be assured that we will please the Lord. And we have that assurance because it's, it's not brought about in and of ourselves. We don't please the Lord in and of ourselves or apart from Christ, but because we have been united to Christ. And it is God who is at work within us. He is the one by His Spirit bringing about His will for us, which is our sanctification. We are called to do His will. We are to strive to do His will. But it is the Lord who is at work. Bringing about His will. Producing in us what we need so that we can do what He has called us to do. That's why Paul calls us his workmanship. We're God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And we can rest assured that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And we're assured of that because Christ's glory is the ultimate end, it's his glory. And so it's Christ who is worthy of glory, both now and forevermore. And because we've been saved in Christ and for Christ's glory, we will will continue. We've been justified in Christ for Christ's glory. We will be sanctified in Christ and for Christ's glory. We'll be glorified in Christ and for Christ's glory. It sounds very familiar to Paul's words in Romans chapter 11. Why is the writer and why can we be assured of God's purposes being worked out in us? It's because from him and through him and to him are all things for his glory. And Paul concludes with an amen. Right? So be it. So in this benediction, we hear that God is a God who assures And having concluded the benediction, he's got a couple more things that he communicates to us. He wraps up with closing thoughts in verses 22 to 25. And the first thing that he does is he makes one last appeal, very, very pastoral. You think he's done and he comes back with one more point. He's still got one more thing to say. And he's encouraging them again. He's exhorting them to listen to this appeal that he has been making. He's, you know, wants them willingly and thoughtfully to listen, to think about all that he has said in this letter. He, he says, listen, I've really been short. I've been brief. Really, relatively speaking. Right, in the big scheme of things, it's only been, it takes about 45 minutes to, to read or to listen to the book of Ephesians. So it's a letter that you can get through in 45 minutes. He says, in the big picture, what's 45 minutes? But secondly, he says, you notice he mentions Timothy. He mentions the leaders. And all the saints that are there and that they might, they might run into. And he, he speaks of those in Italy 
sending their greeting. And it, really, in this last pronouncement, he's saying, you know, God is a God who unites. That's a wide swath of people from different backgrounds and different locations. And he's saying that there's a unity among Christians. He's communicating there's a unity among Christians within the local church and among Christians within the universal church at large. There's fellowship among believers that crosses over and transcends role and geography. And we know from Paul in his letter to the Galatians that it... it Right? The unity transcends ethnicity and gender and socioeconomic status. He says, regardless of the past and even present differences that you might be experiencing, the union that they and the union that we have with Christ and that consequent union that we have with each other, with those saints, both past and Present and future creates a tie that binds us closer together than anything else we might have in common. And he says it all begins and will always continue by grace. And he wants them to experience that grace. Every day. Three things. Right, here's that, that last thing you thought we were through. Right? I'm going to be the writer. Three things. First, each and every Sunday, when we get to the benediction, I think it's vitally important for us to remember that it is as vitally important than any other element of our worship service in our liturgy. So my encouragement is to not check out. To not think after we've sung the doxology and allow your mind to go to what's happening as you leave. And you're thinking about you know, supper if you haven't eaten already or you're already launching into your week because we're not done. It's a transition statement. So the encouragement is to stay engaged and hear the pronouncement. Receive the blessing. Because that blessing, that is, it's going to encourage you. It's going to equip you as you transition from being gathered to scattering. Secondly, this benediction specifically, but benedict, the benediction generally, is a reminder for us all that we are not going to be able to live in a manner worthy of our calling in and of ourselves. We're not going to be able to please the Lord. We're not going to be able to glorify God. We're not going to be able to glorify Christ by ourselves in our own effort, no matter how determined we might be. We must rely upon and rest in Christ to do what He's called us to do. We must rely upon and rest in what is ours in Him. 
And then finally, the benediction generally, and this one specifically, should remind us every week that striving for any real change in this world that we live in is futile apart from Christ. And brothers and sisters, we see this futility in full living color. It's on display for all to see at this very moment. We see the effects of a misplaced hope in some sort of utopia or heaven on earth that can somehow be created by political action or social reconstruction or racial reconciliation or medical advancement or educational reform. And it's dominating our current culture. And we see chaos and confusion increasing daily as a result. For our own sakes and for the sake of others who are in our spheres of influence. For those that we're in contact with, we must refuse to listen to the rhetoric and refuse to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. The necessary and lasting change that we desire and that's needed will not be reached apart from divine intervention. And that begins in the hearts of individual people. So our call is to transition from here, out there, and to enter into our neighborhoods, and to enter into our schools, and to enter into our places of employment, and our virtual meetings, right, and our athletic practices, and our appropriately distant social gatherings. To enter into those places proclaiming a hope that is contrary to the hope of the world. Our hope is in a God who redeems. Our hope is in a God who consecrates. Our hope is in a God who equips. Our hope is in a God who assures. Our hope is in a God who unites. And may we, as we enter in, transition out there, as we go, may we engage in the conversations and in the life of our community, ready and willing to give a defense for the hope that we have. Christ is the only answer to what ails us. Because as we've heard for the last eight months, He is better than anyone or anything the world has to offer. Let's walk by faith as the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.